I was thinking in um, getting ready to share with you this morning, I, I remembered an incident out of my childhood, a, a time when, well, my, I have three older sisters. I was the youngest of four siblings. And my older sisters, they would start learning how to bake and making things in the kitchen. And I, being the youngest one, said, well, I can do that. And so I got the chance where I could, I could bake some cookies and, and show them the recipe and here's the stuff. And so I baked cookies, stirred them all up and put them on the cookie sheet and put them in the oven and pulled them out of the oven. And they looked good. They looked good. But there was something not quite right. When you bit into those cookies, you could not. They were hard. Not just crunchy hard, they were rock hard. In fact, my older sisters, being the way that older sisters are, uh, suggested we could save those cookies the next time we could use them like rocks the next time we needed to chase the cows out of the garden. Apparently, there are essential ingredients that you don't leave out when you're preparing something. And apparently, there was some essential ingredient that I left out of the batch of cookies. It was the soft and chewy part of the recipe. I left that out, and the cookies were not the same. As it turns out that there are essential ingredients that you leave out, whether it be cookies or the Christian life, and things will be harder Things will be less fulfilling as a result. So in this series that we're doing on essential church, what is essential in church? What ought to be an essential core part as we're restarting church? We've, we've had a pause. We've, we've started again. What is it that should be essential in church? If we can only do certain things, what must those things be. Well, in that series, I want to talk this morning then about essential ingredients. Before we get into that, I should review where we've been in the last couple of weeks. We've seen that God's purpose for our church, God's purpose for any church, is to equip God's family for God's mission. That we saw in Ephesians 4 that, that um, uh, different roles are given to the church in order to equip all those within the church for the building up of the body. That all of us have a part to play in the building up of one another as those who know and follow Jesus. In fact, we will be growing ourselves in knowing and following Jesus as we are helping others to know and follow Jesus. That occurs in a family together. First John chapter 2, we saw that there are stages of growth, stages of maturity in God's family, even as there are in our own families. That there are newborns in the faith. They don't add a whole lot. Those newborns, they don't add much into the family. They are not doing chores yet. They're not filling the dishwasher yet, is she? No. No help at all, no contribution except for the joy that they bring to the family in their new life. And so it is in the church. But then children don't have to grow much before they can start helping. They learn by helping. They, they learn in the doing. And, and so they do chores. And the younger ones can learn that, well, they can help pick up toys. They can help take out the garbage. They can do this task and that task. And sometimes their help is less helpful. 
But it's not just because we've got stuff that needs doing. It's because they need to help. And then they get a little older still, and the teens in the family, the teens are like the, the built-in babysitters and kitchen cleanup, right, for the family. That's, that's their role. Julie and I didn't get a dishwasher until all the, key, all the teens were out of the house. So the, the, um, but but in, in that looking after a teen... Looking after somebody younger who needs them. Giving up something that they would rather go and do because someone else is dependent on them. That's a little taste of what life will bring. That's a foretaste, a, a small nibbling around what parenthood is going to be like. We, we grow up in these experiences. Then there are the, there, then there are the young adults. They, they are ready. They're full of ideals. They're ready to go out and change and tackle the world. They are infatigable and undefeatable, and nothing can stop them. They're bulletproof. They haven't yet experienced some of what the, what the mothers and fathers, the, the grandparents have about what life will bring. And, and so, though we don't have the same level of energy as those who are younger, we add something back in from our experience that guides and directs the energy of youth more profitably, profitably and fruitfully, right? Okay, so that happens in, in families and that happens in God's family as well, that we grow ourselves as we are helping others grow. That's normal in maturing together through these stages that we saw in 1 John. So that we grow together as family, building up the body to God's intended end, which is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we are seeking to be helping one another to grow in Christ's likeness, maturity which looks like Jesus in human life. Well, that's not so surprising. Jesus looked like Jesus in his real human life. He showed us what it was for humanity, lived in perfect harmony with God's will for God's purposes. He showed us what that looks like, and that's what we're growing into. In fact, if we want to think about what's essential in the Christian life, what's essential for Christ's life in our life, well, we first could pause at a statement that Jesus makes concerning his ministry in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Open there first. We'll go to, a, to four different passages this morning. But first, I want to stop at John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. And so Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And Father, and he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. There are three essentials contained in that statement that Jesus makes. First of all, there is a standard of truth that even for Jesus was outside of himself. He says, I don't just say what I want. I don't just speak whatever. I speak just as the Father taught me. God's truth comes through me to you. Jesus wasn't freelancing. He was fully in harmony. The things that he said were God's truth. Not only that, he, he, he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. 
That he didn't just speak God's truth, but you could say he did God's truth. He lived God's truth. He demonstrated God's truth in human life to the extent that we see it most fully. We see the very heart of God lived out in humanity when Jesus himself would be lifted up on a cross, giving himself in sacrifice for us. Him in his life serving us. So you see, you can summarize what Jesus says in that short statement about his own ministry. His ministry circled around God's word, God's will, I always do the things which please him, and God's way, the way of sacrifice for the sake of others. God the Son giving himself for us. Those suggest to us these essentials that I want to talk about for are building up the body of Christ. The essential ingredient in building up the body of Christ to the measure of Christ-likeness are going to be God's word, God's will, and God's ways. It's going to be biblical truth lived out in obedient living that looks like Jesus in Christ-like serving. Let's start with biblical truth. Let's, let's take just kind of the foundational piece of that, that which the, the rest is going to respond to, biblical truth as, as described in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You can have fun sometime going through the 316s of the, of the New Testament. So 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Paul is, is passing the torch here. Paul is no longer going to be around to continue to mentor Timothy. He says his departure is at hand. So what does he leave Timothy with? What word does he give to Timothy of how Timothy is going to continue when Paul's no longer around to to answer his questions, to send him another letter? He says to Timothy in verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, All Scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God, and Therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God, or may I add the woman of God, may be complete, lacking nothing, fully furnished themselves and equipped for every good work. And I ask you, what is the good work? The good work that, that, that pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry defined by Ephesians 4, is the building up of the body of Christ. What is it that Timothy needs first? If he is going to do the good work, if he is going to be equipped for the good work of building up others in the body of Christ, it is Scripture. It is biblical truth. It is not just God's Word generally in the sense of this is what I think God is telling me. No, at this stage in the apostolic era, Paul is is bringing Timothy's focus back because he's bringing our focus back to what God has clearly, definitively said to us in his word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. God has breathed out his word to us, and so biblical truth gives us clarity in the Christian life. It is biblical truth that we are going to respond to. This is how we are going to know. This is what we're going to be instructed by. What we're going to be confronted by. We're going to be challenged and provoked. We're going to be stretched in response to what God has to say to us out of his word. 
in Scripture. Essential to building up the body of Christ is that we are going to live by faith, and faith is always in response to what God has said. You do, let me start over here, you do what you believe. And you can only believe that which you know. What you know determines what you believe. What you believe determines what you do. It all starts with what you know. If you want to walk in God's will in ways that look like Christ, you're going to have to start by knowing what is God's will. Where do I find that? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Biblical truth is the foundation, the starting place. It's the key and core essential of our building up the body of Christ. You find that being built on in the next place I want to go, Romans chapter 12. So turn back over to Romans chapter 12. Look for these three essentials again. Look for that sacrificial serving. Look for obedience to God's will, obedient living. Look for a reference to God's truth and its role, biblical truth in the Christian life. In Romans chapter 12. This is, this is I think, a, a core, a, uh, a key, probably the most generally applicable statement of God's will for the Christian life in the New Testament. And, look, and, and the reason I would say that is, even before we read these verses, is let me give you a little uh, background, a little context in the book of Romans where we get to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. These, these, these verses, okay, okay, the book of Romans, first of all, I would, I, I, I call Paul's Bible conference epistle. These are the things that Paul wants any and every church to know. If he didn't plant a church, if he was not there in the founding of it, in the starting of it, if he has not yet visited that church and been able to make sure that they know the core and key essentials that they need to know to, to strengthen and grow, then he gives this letter. That's that's the epistle to the Romans. This is perhaps Paul's greatest work. It unfolds our salvation, all that God has done for us in Christ, and how we then live in response to that more fully and clearly and logically than any other of Paul's letters. That's why it's first in the New Testament. Not because it was written first, but right after the book of Acts, as the, as the church continues off into history, they need this letter to the church at Rome. This is, this is kind of the essential starting point for us. And in chapters 1 to 11, before we get to the verses we're going to look at, in chapters 1 through 11, Paul has spent a lot of time going over what it is that God has done for us in Christ. In fact, I like to give a one-sentence outline for the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. Some of you have heard this from me before. But almost one word for each chapter, for the first eight chapters, it goes like this. The gospel, chapter 1. For sinners, two, justified, made righteous, three, by faith, four, in Christ, five, to new life, six, in this flesh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, chapter eight. And this glorious salvation by which God has made us righteous has strengthened us to live out that life in this sinful flesh by the Spirit in the midst of our fallenness, but anticipating that day when he will gloriously save us even from the presence of sin. That from beginning to end, and what God has started, he will see through. God has done all of this for us. And this is fully in harmony with God's Past faithfulness, 
chapter 9, his present faithfulness, 10, and his future faithfulness to his covenant people. So as God has been, is being, and will be faithful to Israel, so also he has been, will be, has been, is, and will be faithful to us in this glorious salvation he's unfolded to us in Romans. That's Romans 1 to 11. What does Paul do with that? In the end of chapter 11, he breaks into this grand doxology of praise. He is carried away in praise. He can't contain himself. And then as he, as he comes back to earth again, at the end of chapter 11, into chapter 12 now, considering all that God has done for us, the great salvation and the faithfulness of God. Now he comes to chapter 12 and he turns his thoughts again to these Christians in the church at Rome and these Christians here in Brush Prairie. And he says, therefore, I beseech you, I appeal to you, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now hold right there for a moment. Paul's, that's a pretty big ask, isn't it? Paul, how could you ask such a thing? Paul is not asking for a little renovation here. Paul is not saying, you know, let's just clean things up a little bit. Let's, uh, let's put a few dollars in the offering now and again. Let's uh, work on a, a bad habit or two. No, Paul is saying complete transformation. Paul is saying in light of everything that God has done, then we would give everything to him and for him. To present your bodies a living, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And don't be conformed to this world any longer, but be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your minds. A change first in mind. So that you may, by testing, you may discern what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What is morally right and good no matter what the rest of the culture says. What is acceptable and well-pleasing, what it is that delights and thrills God's heart when we, his children, bring it before him and ask if he would maybe put this up on his fridge. What is perfect in God's will? What it is that is reaching God's intended aim and end for us? His, his ultimate outcome for us, which is the measure of the stature of Christ-likeness in us. That, did you notice what that ask is based on? Present your bodies. What's it based on? It's by the mercies of God. It is in light of, it is in response to everything from chapter 1 to chapter 11 that God has done for us in Jesus this gospel for sinners justified by faith in Christ to new life in this flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit that God has been faithful, is faithful, and will be faithful that we are safe in his hands. So let's trust ourselves, he says, into his hands. Let's go forward hand in his hand. Let's then live in light of that which God has said to us. The starting point is biblical truth. 
That now, from chapters 12 through 16, he's going to call us to live in light of. Now comes the application chapters in response to that biblical truth where there's going to be a call to obedient living. So biblical truth is the foundation for something. You know what would be a terrible thing? If we read through Romans, no, that wouldn't be the terrible thing. The terrible thing would be if we read through Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Oh, that's wonderful. 9, 10, 11. Not sure I understood all that. But we say, oh, this is wonderful. We, we join Paul in his doxology of worship and we close the book. Oh, that is so good. I am so glad I know that now. I am so glad that no matter what happens, no matter what I do, that I am safe in the arms of Jesus. Oh, that is good to know. That would be a terrible thing because we wouldn't even know it the way we know. But one of the risks, the great risk for a Bible-believing and teaching church like ours is, the, is, is that we will know without doing, that we will learn and yet will not live. In fact, I will suggest to you out of this very passage, out of verse 2, that we do not learn unless we are living in. We do not know unless we step into it. That's what that phrase, that testing or proving so that you may discern, you may comprehend What is that good, acceptable, perfect will of God? That it's in the doing that you will know it. It is in the testing of it out, in taking a step forward into it, that's how you'll discern that, yes, it is good. You won't know it's good until you step into it. That's what he's saying here. Let me give you an illustration of that. Go back to my cookie fail. Pulled that sheet out of the oven. 375, everything was right. 12 minutes, it was all good. The cookies looked good. Just a little golden brown, you want one. No, you don't. Because they say the proof of the pudding's in the eating. The proof of the cookie's in the biting. But you could not bite. You could not chew. So it was only in stepping into it, only in the tasting and seeing did I know how things really were. And on a positive side, so it is with God's Word. Let me give you a positive example of that. I remember it was about 30 years ago when I first realized that um, I should get glasses. My eyes aren't that bad. I can still see all of you without. I couldn't see if you were sleeping there way in the back or not. But I can still see that you're there. Thank you. Now, I was teaching in the Air Force electronics, and I put a circuit up on the board, and students were working through that. And so I was just kind of circulating around the classroom. I came around the back row, and I, I looked up, and I thought, wow. I think I said to, the, to, to one of the students next to me, well, that's really hard to see from back here, isn't it? He said, no, no, it's perfectly clear. I can see it just fine. I said, really? He says, yeah. He said, do you wear glasses? Because I wasn't wearing any glasses. I said, no, I've never worn glasses. And he said, here, try mine. And I put them on. And oh, yeah, I can see it just fine. That's perfectly clear. I never knew that you could see that clearly. I didn't know you were supposed to see that clearly until I stepped into it, until I put the lenses over my eyes, you see. I have an even better illustration of that. A better illustration of that in stepping into it, that's when you know it. When, when, when in participating, in jumping in, that's when you experience and thus comprehend it. It's in the movie 
Ford versus Ferrari. Now, before I show the clip, let me set this up. In, in the midst of this movie, okay, the um, Ford company has partnered with Shelby Motors in order to develop a race car on their Mustang chassis that is going to beat Ferrari at Le Mans. And so, in the midst of this, in the course of the movie storyline, that there comes a point where, where, where Carol Shelby needs to convince Henry Ford II, the son of the founder of Ford, he needs to convince him that this race car is different. Not anybody can, ride, can drive this race car. If you want to win, you need the right driver who knows this car. And the only way for him to convince Henry Ford of that is for Henry Ford to get into the car. And so he invites Mr. Ford, let's go for a ride. You ready? The name on the middle of that steering wheel should tell you that I was born ready, Shelby. Hit it. Love Terrible. the confidence. have a tendency to soil themselves. My daddy, you were alive to see this, <laughs> to feel this. Judy said, I had no idea. We have an idea of what God's will would be like if we were to step into it. But maybe the idea we have in advance is if I do that, I'm going to miss stuff. If I do that, God's going to withhold from me stuff that I could have in the here and now. It's the same lie that was told in the Garden of Eden. The lie's still told, and unfortunately, it's still believed. But once you take a step in and you taste and see that God's will is good, it's pleasing, it's perfect. It will take you toward God's intended end for you. Once you've tasted, then you begin to get it. That's why I said, to read and to know and to close the book and walk away is a terrible tragedy. Because you will not know the goodness of God until you have stepped into it. 
Did you, did you catch as well what else he said there? He said, I wish my daddy could have known this, experienced this. As you, as you begin to taste and see that the Lord and his will is good, you want others to know it, to taste it as well. You want to pass that along to others. So, Biblical truth is given to us that we might know it and know God in it by stepping into it. And as we step into living in God's will, from biblical truth we respond in obedient living. That's where we taste and see. That's where we know. That's where we get it. We can be peddling around in what we think is the Christian life, peddling around on our bicycles as fast as our little legs will carry us, and we will have no idea of what that 427 Mustang would be like. But when we step into it, often in a way that actually costs us something, when we taste and see the will of God in obedience and following him, even when it calls for some sacrificial cost to ourselves for the sake of serving others, that's where we taste something of what it was that the Lord himself did for us. And we appreciate in the doing more fully and deeply what it is that God has done for us. Let me show you that one more place in Philippians chapter 3, chapter 2 rather. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. This is another one of those really key, this is, this is a, a foundational for the Christian life. This is what the Christian life is based on. Verse 3, Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'll read on a few verses. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to held on to for himself, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, trusting that God the Father would exalt him in due time, as he will you, as he will I, as we trust ourselves to him. You see, you cannot know him, and you know even the, the, the reach and the, the comprehension of God's truth as we step into it, as we begin to follow, and as we help others to know and follow. That's where we will know more deeply and be able to follow ourselves. And that as we are following, we are not following Jesus if we're not going where Jesus is going. We are not following Jesus if we are not doing what Jesus is doing. And what, how did Jesus define his own coming? He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served. There's that not conform to this culture, transform, because we grow up in a culture where we are conditioned to expect to be served. We expect others to do things and provide things for us. And we can easily come to church expecting to be served. What have you got for me today? How are you going to lift my emotions today? How are you going to teach me something that I didn't know today? When we come together as a church to build up 
the body of Christ. We come together to build together into the lives of one another. We come bringing something for someone that we're going to be together with here. You come together in your small group, not again to be taught something new that you didn't know, but you come together in a small group to be able to grow together by strengthening and serving one another. That we are going to be growing and following Jesus as we are serving. Not just reading and learning, but as we step into what his word says. By following it and following him in Christ-like serving for the sake of others. Even that, isn't that how it works in family? The newborn, I said, doesn't really contribute anything. But there's a joy there in new life. But the others do. Kids can help. And it's not only that the kids have chores to do because, by golly, you've got stuff to do in the house and you're too busy to get it all done. Well, that might be part of it. But the reality is Julie and I could have bought that dishwasher a whole lot earlier, couldn't we? It wasn't that we didn't like our kids so we wanted to make them work. We loved our kids so we needed to let them work. They needed to be able to contribute in the family. And, and they grow in knowing who they are and how they fit and how they can be used to benefit others. They stretch and grow by serving and doing. And it gets a little older. And I mentioned earlier how the, how the um, grandparents and parents give back out of their experience. And that when we are able to share out of our experience not only our victories and how God was faithful and helped us prevail, but even when we were able to share out of our failings and our weakness. And yet we experience God's forgiveness and his restoring grace and his redemption in the midst of real life stuff that that is going to strengthen and encourage the ones who are going to come behind us. And they're going to make some of those mistakes too. And they'll need to know. They'll need somebody to have pointed them in the direction of God's mercy and grace. Not only that, but as you share your experience of God's forgiveness and grace and mercy or victory and help in time of need with somebody else, you are deepened and strengthened in it yourself. You grow deeper in your grasp of God's goodness to you as you rehearse that for the sake of somebody else. So in serving somebody else in the rehearsing of your story, you grow deeper in your appreciation of him and his grasp upon your life. So then, the essentials in Knowing and following Jesus in helping others to know and follow Jesus are going to be biblical truth responded to in obedient living that presses us toward Christ-like serving for the sake of others. Even as Jesus lays out an example for us that we're going to have that mind in us which is also in Christ Jesus. God's truth calls us to obedience Everything of Romans 1 through 11 calls us in chapter 12 to present our bodies a living sacrifice in the ways that are defined in chapters 12 to 16. And in that response of 12 to 16, we're going to give up our rights. We're going to give up our privileges. We're going to lay our life down in sacrifice for the sake of others, even in that long list of names in chapter 16 that have, of others that Paul mentions who have done that. 
for the sake of the building up of the body of Christ in that church. Biblical truth calls us to obedient living, which steps more and more into Christ-like serving. Or we obey biblical truth in life by serving like Jesus. And it's in that Christ-like serving that we will know and follow him. That means each one can serve. Each one can encourage another, can share to another. For instance, somebody comes to you and says, I, I don't think I'm going to make it to small group this week. Uh, you know, I had a lot going on. It's been really busy. I'm kind of tired, and I think I'm just not going to make it. And, and you say, oh, well, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe I won't make it either. Or you could say, oh, I really, I really hope that you will. You know, we, we could even, even when it's harder to get there, it's all the more important that we're reminded to, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, the gathering together, so that we might encourage one another, that we might provoke one another to love and good deeds, and to do that even when it's harder to do. And to, and to tell them, you know, when you're in the group, some of the questions you have asked, some of the comments you have made or insights you've shared, those helped me to understand better what we were talking about and understand better what next step I needed to take in it. Encourage them in continuing by the difference they've made as you've walked with them. You see, we have a role to play in the life of one another encouraging one another along. Each one of us serves in, in an example like that. If these are the essentials, our church needs to prioritize, and we need to get these things out on the counter. We need to focus in the things that we do that are going to be focused around knowing God's biblical truth so that we can step into that, in that by stepping into that, there we will know our God and his goodness toward us as we live it out in Christ-like serving toward others, that they might know it too. If that's the thing, then I've got a, a few questions I want to close with. First of all, is receiving biblical truth a priority for you? When you come together on Sunday morning or whether you're following along with us online on the video, that, that are you looking in the songs that we sing, in the word that is spoken, is this in your estimation, God has brought us together so that I would hear his truth from him out of his word. You know, church changed for me about 36, 37 years ago. Doing a lot of backstories today. Church changed for me when I, when I, it occurred to me one Sunday that this pastor was not just the pastor of the church. This pastor was somebody that God has given to me as a messenger from God to me that I would hear a word from God spoken into my life. That changed how I listened in church. That changed what I got out of being together in worship, both in the songs and in the message. Are you making time for God's word to speak to you in the midst of the week? Are you having that time with the Lord in prayer, with the Lord in front of his word? Can I suggest to you that as you do that through the week, that one of those mornings you make that time, a time when you'll go back to what it was that we talked about on Sunday. And again, rehearse the, those scriptures before the Lord and say, Lord, what do you have for me here? How do I take a next step into this? Are you part of a small group? 
where you are engaged and seeking together around God's God's word, that you're wrestling with it, that you're seeking to apply it, that you're asking questions of the text, and that better yet, you're, at, you're letting the text, you're letting God's word ask questions of you. Lord, what would you have me to do? Now, when God's word challenges you, do you share that with others, like those in your small group, so that you will not only have some accountability from them because others know what it is that God has called you to do? the next step you're supposed to take, but also you will have encouragement from them. Somebody will ask me, how's it going? And knowing that they care is going to help me to be diligent about what do I do with what God has said. Are you willing to be used by God in the growth of somebody else? Do you have somebody that as you taste and see, that you also want to share? You want like... Henry Ford II, you want for somebody else to know it, to experience it, to realize it too. Knowing that if I'm going to give my life in serving like Jesus served, that's going to mean life-on-life relationships, getting involved in the life of somebody else, walking with them, that I might speak truth into the moment, sharing life with them, that I'd be able to encourage them along the way, that they learn that they can trust me to share the doubts and the fears that they experience. And finally, as we speak of serving, when you see a task that needs doing, do you make a mental note of that? That's something the church needs to do something about. Oh, that's right. Maybe it's, Lord, what would you have me to do? That's something that I need to do something about. Or even better, will you grab somebody else and say, hey, let's go do something about that. Bringing somebody else along with you, like the five-year-old helping you make the bed. It might be a little bit messy, but it'll probably be more fun if you relax a little bit. And sooner or later, you'll still get the bed done. When you receive and pass on biblical truth, you give light to others. When you respond in obedience to what God has said, you are cutting a trail of following Jesus that somebody else, an example that they can follow. When you see the needs of others and you give up something to serve them, not only might you meet a need, but there is the opportunity to show them something of what Jesus looks like, even as he did for you. Receiving biblical truth in obedience, stepping into it in ways that lead us to follow Jesus in Christ-like serving. This is how we will know him. This is how we will show him to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your truth. Thank you, Father, that there it shows us you. It shows us us. It calls us to not only to know of you, but to know you in experience. It invites us to walk with you. Lord, as we think on these things, having heard them, having seen that, yeah, knowing by experience makes a difference. Lord, where would you have me next to experience your will? Lord, help me to trust you there. Help me to trust you when you call for some cost, some sacrifice, some way that I, in fact, might take up my cross and follow you. Lord, 
if for no other purpose than in there I would know you. Thank you, Lord, for that. Use your word in us to change us, that indeed we and, Lord, together as we serve one another might be more like Jesus for those around us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.